0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 6. It is a huge privilege to be here. My wife and I, in many ways, consider this our second church. She grew up in Leesburg, so whenever we come to visit her folks that are still up here, we, we come here, and we're happy to do it. Uh, actually, the first time we visited, this church still met in Ashburn Village. Um, and so we've seen God prosper you and bless you. It was also a a huge privilege to be with your officers at the retreat. I'm not sure I taught them that much. They are godly men. You all are blessed with wonderful officers, and I'm sure wonderful women leaders in this this church as well. Um, And I I do need to say publicly, I love your pastors. You guys have great, gifted, godly men. I hope you know that. I know Dave best of all, but I've gotten to know the other Dave really well as well. Um, There he is. And... uh, He calls me P. Hutch, which was the Lostova's nickname for me. Uh, And uh, I've just gotten to know Frank really well. He's a wonderful man. If his voice could just be a little bit lower, then uh, (laughs) it would be even better. And uh, David, happy birthday. If you didn't hear that interaction, it's your senior pastor's uh, birthday today, and he said he's just turned 25 is what I think he said. So with, with all of that said... Uh, We're turning now to a passage that has uh, been very meaningful to me over the years. Early on in my life, I decided I was going to let this passage mark my ministry as best as I could with God's help, and frankly, um, in the past 25 years, um, I've returned to it again and again, and it's always been helpful. So let's hear now God's word. I have brought the New American Standard Version, which is my old Bible. In fact, I left it here one time, and Dave mailed it to me. So thank you very much for that. But I'll read, I'll go ahead and read the passage from the bulletin, which is the ESV. Let's hear now God's word this morning. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, thank you for this chance to gather in the name of Christ together. And I pray as I come with weakness and trembling, you would use me to encourage my brothers and sisters in the gospel, that it wouldn't be about the sermon, it wouldn't be, be, be about the retreat, it would not be about Potomac Hills, that it would be about Christ growing in each of us as we cling to him by faith. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. When I was uh, in seminary. I was invited to preach in an old congregational church in Boston that it was founded in 1642. And if you love history like I do, that was a big deal to be, to be preaching in one of the oldest churches in America. And more than that, it had a church sanctuary that seated 1,500 people. I mean, this was a church sanctuary with pillars and dark wood and balconies everywhere And it had a pulpit so high that I actually had to go two flights of stairs to get to the top of it. Imagine if I'm like up there at the ceiling preaching down at you. And they informed me, by the way, that they had a radio program and it was even going to be on TV in some obscure cable channel that I'm sure three people were watching. But the point was, is this was exciting for me. And when I got there to preach and I mounted the pulpit, there were, in that Sunday morning... 30 people left in that congregation. But here is what really struck me about it, those 30 people all sat as far away as possible from each other as they could in a huge 15, it was like C.S. Lewis's vision of hell if you've ever read that book, The Great Divorce. What happened to that church? Well I don't know for sure. But I would suggest that our text gives us a clue what happened to that church and to many others. If you look at verse 3 of our text, Paul says we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let's see what Paul says about how we may maintain unity in the church. As you know, I imagine uh, chapter 4 begins the practical section of Ephesians. Ephesians was a letter that was circular in nature. It was written as a general letter to the early church. Uh, Some people call it a mini-Romans. And we know that he's switching from the doctrinal section in the first three chapters to the application in the last three chapters because of a little phrase there in verse 1 where he says, I therefore urge. It's the exact same Greek that you see in Romans 12.1 when Paul does the same thing of switching from the gospel to how we live out of the gospel. But it's very critical before we go on to the rest of chapter 4 that we understand what comes first. Look again at verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord by the way, I'm in a bad place. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have already been called. In other words, just live up to what God already has done for you. Now, if you know Ephesians, you know he's pointing back to chapter 1, where he talks at the end of that chapter. He says he's praying, as Dave just prayed this wonderful prayer, praying that the Ephesians may know the hope in which God has called them the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And you know where the Ephesians and the other early Christians got that from that God the Father predestined each of them to salvation. He loved them before they even knew him. And then God the Son, of course, comes down and accomplishes it for us entirely by his merit and his sacrificial death on their behalf. And then what's even more, God the Holy Spirit then comes and moves into their life and he seals that grace to them and nothing can ever remove that seal. Once you're in Christ, you will never lose that. And so Paul is just saying, okay, now that looks like something in your life. But never forget, you start with what God has done for you. As some theologians would put it, that the indicative always precedes the imperative. You always remember God's grace to you in Christ before you then start to follow him. Because look, if you just flip ahead to chapters 4 through 6 and look at these high demands of Paul upon uh, us in the Christian life, you know you can't really live up to them. And yet there are some churches that say, well, here's the simple gospel, get saved, make a decision, and then we're just going to give you the law and tell you how to live. And then you just get burdened because you can't do it. I mean, look at, for instance, chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, how many of you can just imitate God perfectly and just do it just right? Right. But then he goes on in verse 2 of chapter 5 and says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrance aroma. So there, as Paul is calling us to love one another, to imitate God, he's doing it out of the gospel of grace. We love because Christ first loved us, and you will never, ever lose that. And so... Then we have to ask, if it's entirely by grace, then, then why do we have to do anything? Well, look, it's, it's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, if you know those verses, where Paul says what? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, even that faith is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. But then he goes on in chapter 10, verse 10 rather, Four, so you're saved by grace through faith alone. Then he goes on and says, but you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works or to walk in those good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to do. So here's the good thing about your Christian life. Even the good works you're supposed to do, God's already prepared for them for you. You don't have to make them up. You don't have to try to earn God's favor. You just say, God, what, what do you have left for me? Maybe it's something small. Or maybe it's just taking care of a couple of people. And those are the good works. You are walking in grace that way. And so, as we go to chapter 4, and Paul says, I want you to live up to this calling with which you already have. You already have the gospel. It starts with grace. He uses that same word there as chapter 2, verse 10, to now walk in it. What does Paul begin with in these last three chapters? Look, look at verses 3 through 6. He says, and he's going to be talking about all sorts of things, about the church and about spiritual gifts and parents and children. And then he says in verse 3, though, of chapter 4, this is what he starts with before he gets to all of that stuff. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the first thing that we are called to do to reflect this high calling is that we work hard at staying united together. Doesn't that help you as a church set your priorities? Wherever it is the Lord is taking you, whatever you think, whatever the vision you think the church ought to do or the outreach it ought to have, according to, to Paul, the very first thing you ought to work on is a unity together, staying united together. That brings God glory more than exponential growth. More than having the best worship team there ever was, although y'all's is pretty good. It's staying united together in the bond of peace. So, a couple of things about this. First of all, it doesn't necessarily come easy. Paul does say, make every effort. It takes effort to stay united, it takes extra effort, especially with people that are different than you, to overcome those cultural barriers. To really, we talked a lot about this in the officers' r- retreat. To really work hard at listening to one another. Listening is really hard work. It wears me out. I mean, I love you all. I'll try to listen to you, but it wears me out because I really want, because if you're listening well, that you're trying to love them and then you care for their problems, that takes effort. And the other thing I want us to notice is it's a unity of confession. Look Look at verses four through six. There is one body, one spirit just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, did one, was there a word that, that stood out? Sometimes when you're reading scripture, one word can be very powerful. When I was a, a teenager, I used to get in a little bit of trouble before my conversion, actually a lot of trouble before my conversion, a little bit after. Um, but one of the things that my friends and I used to do was go around the neighborhood and do ding-dong ditch. Does everybody know that? Kids, do not. this is before I came to Christ. Do not imitate this. We would go and we'd ring a doorbell and run away, but we had a little special twist to it. We had these little pole firecrackers that if you pull the strings, they did a little explosion. So we'd tie them to the door and then we'd ring the bell and, we'd, and the person would open the door and it would explode. And then usually there's a stun and we're just kind of laughing from behind a tree or something. Well, one time we did it um, near the church that I, I uh, had my Boy Scout troop in. And we did it to a, a house. And we went and hid under a car. And the thing was, as soon as the door opened, it went bang, and the guy slammed it. And then he opens the door. And I kid you not, we're hiding under his car. I kid you not, this guy came out in like a, 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 a Speedo bathing suit. And that was all he was wearing. <laughs> and he was a weightlifter. And he was built like a, a reverse triangle. I mean, this guy was bolted. And he had a baseball bat. And he came tearing out of the, of the house. Now, if we had just stayed under the car, he would have been fine. But we panicked. So we got out. And he's literally just a few feet behind us. And we don't know what we're doing. So we run to the church. We run down the stairwell outside the church. And of course, it had a locked door. And he stands up at the top of that stairwell and says, kids, come on out. I know you're down there. Come on out of there. Come on out of that stairwell. And we're trembling. And we're like, we have no choice. We've got to come out. So the three of us came out. And he said, where do you kids live? And I, of course, didn't want to tell him. I was just two blocks away. But I didn't want to tell him. So I I used one word there that I've never used before and I've never used since. I just kind of pointed vaguely and I said, yonder. (laughs) That's a great word. Now, Did you notice in verses 4 through 6, there's a word that stands out? What is it? One. How many times? Did you count? Seven times. And I'm not a biblical numerologist, but maybe there's something to the fact that Paul says, there's one that you all share in common seven times. There is your perfection. Later in the chapter, he talks about growing into a perfect unity. That is our goal. That is what Christ is accomplishing as he works his grace in us, that we become more and more united. But it is a unity of confession. We come, even though we seek a racial and cultural diversity, we ought to seek a oneness of mind when it comes to doctrine. If you have a strong opinion about something, be very careful about espousing it unless it's clearly from God's Word. And you also ought to have an open mind and be willing to change your mind as you're shown new things clearly from God's Word. That is what unites us, is our doctrine. It's not just a lovey, touchy-feely, oh, we, ought, we know we ought to love. It's because of the truth of Scripture. We work hard towards that. And yet, even as we do that, we know that doctrine often divides Christians from one another. Isn't that right? Because we read the same scriptures and we come to different conclusions. So how do we stay united with other denominations, for instance, when they're doing their best to understand and we're doing our best to understand? Well, there's no easy answers. There's whole books written on this. All I want to point out this morning is if they are in Christ, they are your brother and sister in Christ. And you ought to wish for them the very best you can to pray for them, to want them to prosper. You're not competitors with them. One of my friends from college has planted a Methodist church here in town, Evergreen, I think it is, and you're friends with Chip Giesler. We ought to be praying for them. I keep up with him. He's a Methodist. I don't agree with him on a bunch of stuff. But he loves Jesus, and he wants to see people come to Christ. All believers in Christ have the same Holy Spirit, the same Savior, the same hope of heaven the same lord jesus the same faith and we have the same baptism and presbyterianism at its best understands that we allow everyone to join who has a simple profession of faith we honor every church's baptism that's a part of staying united is that we respect what god is doing with others in blacksburg uh, we've had two different church plants. We're not the biggest church in the world, but we had two different church plants come in and wanted to use our building to help them get going. One was an Anglican church that preached Christ. Another was a Baptist church that preaches Christ, but kind of annoys me. And they, because they're like way, they're way bigger than us, but they don't have a building. And I'm like, do I want to give them our buildings so that they can keep growing bigger? Yes, we do. We do. We trust the Lord. That they are part of his kingdom, and we want to see them prosper as best as possible while also challenging them and them challenging us on the truth of Scripture. And so here's the thing. Even if you happen to be right, and little, you know, inside baseball here, Presbyterians, we think we're right on stuff. We do. Even if we happen to be right, look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you have better doctrine than your neighbor, that we were just praying for, it's only by grace. What do you have that's not been given you? It's only by God's grace. So even as you stand for truth, do so in a way that seeks unity with that other brother and sister in love for them. And so that's an excellent transition to asking the question what is the link between this grace? that we establish the gospel of grace, you're in Christ, you're saved forever, all your sins are forgiven, just believe it. Just believe it. That's, that's job number one. Keep believing the gospel, whatever you're going through. And then there's this unity, which I said is the very first thing we ought to be striving for, but there's a link between them. If you noticed, uh, I kind of fibbed a little. There's, there's actually another verse between verse one and three. It's not rocket science, John. There's verse two. Where's John? This is, look at verse two, I just skipped it. Here is the link. Here is the glue, because we understand sometimes having the gospel and having a common confession isn't enough to keep us united. And your pastors know that, who are involved in Presbyterian general assembly. We need something else besides the simple gospel, and besides a common confession of faith. And that's verse two. Let's read verse two together, where he says, "With, where does he say? He says, "With all humility." And gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. So, again, notice what Paul does not say is the first result of the gospel. He doesn't say obey the Ten Commandments. Of course, you should, but that's not what he says first. He doesn't say immediately go out and evangelize everyone. Of course, that's wonderful. He doesn't say that first. He doesn't say figure out every jot and tittle of doctrine. Not first. What Paul says is the very first application of the gospel. The very first one. Once you've understood you're saved by grace alone, the very first one is that we should be completely gentle and humble and love one another. That's it. It's the same thing he said in Ephesians 2.9. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Therefore, lest no one should boast. Same thing he does in Romans 3 when he lays out that you're saved by justification in Christ's atoning death. Immediately says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. It's the very first application of the gospel. And it is the only way to a true and abiding unity in the church. That we each remember whatever our disagreements, whatever our grievances, whatever hurts that we've suffered from others, that we are all. Sinners who deserve hell except for God's sovereign mercy, that were saved by grace. If someone sins against you and needs forgiveness, how can you not forgive them the same way God has forgiven you in Christ? It's the most glorious and wondrous thing you can do to extend grace to a fellow sinner. That's when you see victory, that's when you see the kingdom grow. That's when you see your Christ likeness advance, not because you're getting a lot of stuff done, but because you're reflecting the love of Christ towards another and you're becoming more like him. That's the very first application of the gospel. And you see, the thing though is, is this is not a checklist, this is not a rule book that you can keep. This kind of thing is hard and it's beyond our control. I was reminded as Dave was praying, he said, Lord, we can't change these things, therefore we're praying. So the same thing. You can't make yourself more humble, and you certainly can't make other people more humble, parents. I mean, spanking is sometimes useful. It doesn't breed humility. Prayer and the Holy Spirit are the only ways that that comes about. It would be easy if we could just do the math and line everything up, and we have our wonderful confession of faith, and we have our church procedures, and that that would automatically lead to humility. It does not. It has to be the work of the Spirit. And only God can bring that. It's God is the Spirit. And so we pray and we beg and we ask. And he always answers. When you ask for more humility and gentleness, he will always answer that for you. Nothing is closer to his heart when you pray prayers of, Lord, make me more like your Son, Christ, to whom I am united forever. As I've gotten older, I've realized how little progress I've made. This is a subject I've studied all my life as soon as I came to Christ at age 17. I've literally studied books on it and studied as an academic subject and looked for it throughout all of Scripture. But then as I kind of arrived in my career in my 40s and now I'm in my 50s and things had sort of gone well and I, th- and I was like, well, and I haven't been vainglorious or boastful that much. But then other strains would come up as I had arrived I then started noticing a certain amount of, of expectation and, and a sense of privilege, and that people owed me respect, and I finally got a few gray hairs to try to get some of that. And I wasn't getting all of that. The people weren't just doing what I wanted them to do. And I had to realize a lot of that is still indwelling pride, and it pops up in different ways. Do you remember that, that 1640 church? Why weren't they united? They had a wonderful tradition. They had the correct doctrine or a solid Reformed church. Well, obviously, it's because they didn't like each other. If you were visiting a church, and they asked me, why aren't we growing? And I said, it's because you guys don't like each other. Now, the good news for you all is I've learned more about your church, and I've heard stories about when people moved here. I think Josh, who was it who was telling me? Kirk was telling me. He moved right in, and you guys didn't even know him, and immediately y'all moved his family in. Frank told me the same thing about the way you cared for his family and they came in when their son was ill. Others will see this in you. That you like, and more importantly, that you love one another. It's not a program. It's not a badge you wear that says, I'm the official greeter, although that's fine to have those. It's the body of Christ. And whether they know it or not, they are seeing Christ in you, and they are seeing a growing and deep humility as you love and serve one another. Make that your aim. After all, just think about the logic of this. You ask, well, all right, well, I'm convinced that humility is important, but exactly how does this grace lead to humility? Just listen to this series of questions and see, see if this makes sense. And what can you possibly boast? Can you boast in your good works? According to Isaiah, they are as filthy rags to God, every one of them tainted by sin. Can you boast in your faith? That, too, is a gift of God. Can you boast in your decision? You know, I made this great decision to follow Jesus. And you're, no, it was God who called you. How about in our knowledge of doctrine? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How about in our love for God that we just, we have so much love for God. No, we love because he first loved us. In our obedience to Christ, it is that God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How about in our spiritual gifts, that you're just really gifted at something? Well, according to verse 7 of our text, grace was given to you according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you're really good at something, that also is from God. How about in our, your wisdom? You're, you want to be known as a wise person. The book of Proverbs says it is with the humble that there is wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if anyone thinks he is wise, let him become a fool, that he might really become wise. How about in our strength of character that we can just endure things? God's power is made perfect in weakness. How about in our spiritual health? That it's not the well, but the sick who need a physician. How about in our experiences? That God has just taken us through so many cool experiences. You know, Paul tells us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, on what God has already done for us, the promises to, to us through Christ. How about in our church positions? Many who are first shall be last. And finally, how about in our many years of service? Unless we become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. We have no choice but to accept that everything we have, particularly in our redemption, is by God's mere pleasure alone, which he freely pours out on us and loves to bless us and give us all things in Christ. But it's entirely by his grace and it's entirely for his glory. And so then that leads us to a deep humility that then, of course, would, would, would impact one another and lead to a deep fellowship and unity with one another. Again, look at the rest of verse 2. We do this with gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another, which indicates, of course, that sometimes some of us are going to be pains in the neck. Just ask my elders. I can promise you. And if we weren't, then Paul would not tell us that we would have to bear with one another. But that brings God glory, that we bear with one another in our faults and our weaknesses, for love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, two qualifiers as we close and try to apply apply this to our lives, as now everyone here is, I'm sure, super motivated to be more humble than ever. You just can't make yourself humble. I know that's a funny thing to say. I just preached a sermon on it and just said, by the way, you can't do it. I mean, you can't just wake up tomorrow and say, all right, today I'm going to be super humble. Uh, one fellow who tried to do that was Benjamin Franklin. You probably know Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian, he did not claim to be a Christian, he uh, was more or less a deist. But he was a very disciplined man and got a lot done. He was a great man, just humanly speaking. And he came up in his autobiography autobiography with a list of 12 virtues that he pursued. And a Quaker friend of his pointed out, he said, well, you've got 12 great things, but where is humility? And so Benjamin added number 13, humility, to it. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'll check this off too. But then he wrote this in his autobiography. He said, in reality, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. You will see it perhaps often even in my own story. For even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. Years ago when I was a member of Fourth Presbyterian in Bethesda where I grew up and where that scary yonder incident took place, um, I just, I became a Christian when I was 17 or if you're a super technical Presbyterian, I improved upon my baptism. All right, never mind, look it up later. I believed the promises to me in my infant baptism. I I was converted really just from a a life of self-righteousness to a life of of trust in Christ alone. And um, I joined 4th Presbyterian, and there was this one fella in the youth group there, and he would come like super dressed in the most stylish fashion. This was the 80s, so that meant like this huge uh, mullet coming down off of his head with the flowing hair, and he'd wear this white jacket with a black T-shirt. I think he was trying to look like those guys in Miami Vice. And someone pointed out to him that he stood out, that he was really kind of drawing attention to himself. And this mortified him. So the very next week he showed up, and this is at Fourth Presbyterian, which is kind of a proper church. He showed up with his head completely shaved and wearing denim from head to toe. Now, nothing's wrong with denim. Some of you denim people are like, oh, now he's judging me. No, but I mean from head to toe. And he stood out like a sore thumb. He's basically saying, look at me. Now I'm humble. My friends, that doesn't work. Really, humility is much more about knowing how broken you are, about knowing your own weaknesses. And then others, when they come to you with their weaknesses and their problems, then you try to comfort them with the same gospel that you have. When I was a a young second lieutenant in the Army, and I got assigned to my first unit, I was a medical guy. I thought I was going to go to a hospital, but the Army, of course, sent me to the infantry, because every infantry battalion is one medical guy, which I found out as I got assigned. And I showed up my first day to physical training around 5 in the morning. And I showed up at the back of the formation. That's where the young officers and the sergeants are. And the scout platoon sergeant uh, came up to me, old Sergeant Grinold. And if you know anything about the infantry, the scouts, at least in the mechanized infantry, the scouts are the elite of that group. And so he came up to me. This was around the early 90s, I guess. And he came up to me, and he looked at me, and he wanted to show who he was, and he pointed to a little little teeny scar on his thigh. And he said, see that, lieutenant? Gunshot wound. Grenada. And all my sergeants are looking at me to see how I'm going to respond. And I wasn't going to take that, so I just looked at him, and I pointed to my heart, and I said, see that, sergeant? Emotional scar. Junior high. (laughs) We all have war stories. We all have things we have survived. But you have a choice, my friends. You can come into your small group. You can come into a meeting and show that you've got it all together and try to take over the room. Or you can come in leading with your weaknesses and come in pointing people to Christ. Come in saying, I do know a few things, but it's only by grace. I do know how to persevere. I do have some ideas, but it's all because of Christ and what he's done through me and for me and in me. And then that then builds a unity in the church and bonds one another in the bond of grace and love. Don't display your humility. Jesus warns about practicing your righteousness before men, but we still must live in public. So what does a humble person look like? It's not necessarily whoever appears meekest or whoever is the most, you know, mousy person in the room. It might be, but not necessarily. I think C.S. Lewis described it best in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, in this wonderful quote. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably... All that you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility, he will not be thinking about himself at all. Now, brothers and sisters, If we're not thinking about ourselves, what are we thinking of? Or better yet, who are we thinking of? Paul tells us right before he begins the practical section of Ephesians, as he ends the doctrinal section in chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, it's really there. But to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever and ever. Oh, Amen. As I just added to scripture, Lord forgive me. But there's a power within us, my friends. That's the power of the gospel, it's the power of Christ but it brings all the glory back to God. That's what we're thinking of. That's what we're thinking of. We're not worried what people think about us. We're not even worried about what we're getting done that much. What we're worried about is that God's kingdom is advancing, that God has been glorified, and that gives us a freedom. It helps us to forget ourselves and not care so much how our careers are going or what our reputations are. We have a vision for Christ to use us in whatever small ways he wants to, because the promise of Scripture is those small ways are not small. They are huge because they bring glory to God. Be faithful in those little things and remember the order of this text. First comes grace. Then comes humility. And then that will lead to unity. Let that be your marching orders. Let's pray together. My God and Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to me. I don't deserve any of these good things you have given me. And I thank you for this church and how faithful they have been and how you have prospered them and caused them to care for one another and to love one another through good times and through rough times. And I pray for you to bless us all to know more of your grace to grow in a a real and abiding self-forgetful humility and that we would love one another and be united together in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. And now, child of God, receive God's blessing through Christ. Peace be to all the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Make sure that's you, and be blessed. Amen.